0: And welcome to out of the box stories. I'm your host, Alison Paradise. Our guest is Kathy Ramirez Aguilar, the most recent recipient of the out of the box award medal from my green lab for her outstanding contributions to the green labs movement. Kathy founded the university of Colorado boulders green lab program all the way back in 2009. She's been working in laboratory sustainability for over 16 years. In our conversation, she shares with us her journey in starting a program, all the way through to her vision for where she sees Green Labs going in the future and what she thinks we as a community need to focus our energy and efforts on in order to create a more sustainable scientific community. Kathy joined me from her home in Boulder, Colorado. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Allison. It's so good to see you.
1: It's nice to see you, too. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. I'm enjoying the summer. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Good to hear. Congratulations on your award. Oh,
1: thank you so (laughs) much. Yeah, that award means so much to me. Really, it does. I just, I'm touched. My heart is touched.
0: Oh, well, I mean it really couldn't have gone to someone better. Like you are the mother of the Green Labs movement.
1: Thank you, that's such an honor. Thank you to hear those words, thank you.
0: I can't believe then we get to talk today because yeah, we get to hear from the woman who started it all so many years ago. And I almost don't even know where to start, but maybe it's good to start at the beginning. So, okay. would you share a little bit about about your origin story, like your superhero, your origin story?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to, Allison. I can tell you about the beginning and how, how things got started. I, uh, you know, I I chose to go to graduate school at the University of Colorado Boulder because it was so well known for sustainability, and so when I got there, I thought wow, you know, there is there is all this amazing research going on around me about sustainability, about environmental issues and, you know, lots of atmospheric chemistry studies and climate change. But I was thinking when I arrived, I was like, oh, I thought there'd be more about how to also conduct research in a more efficient and sustainable way, you know, encouragement to do things with efficiency and sustainability, and I just wasn't seeing that. So it was really when uh, I got after my, uh, my, my PhD in chemistry, and I moved on to a postdoc, also at the University of Colorado Boulder in biochemistry, and it was really when I was a postdoctorate in biochemistry that all the consumption that was just surrounding me just became so troublesome to me and i began to to wonder whether the research that i was doing was going to help more than it was hurting and i went into science to make a difference i went into science to to help and i wanted to help but i just you know i just had this sitting on my shoulders my gosh i'm surrounded by this equipment that's humming all the time that we leave on all the time. Down the hall is autoclave with water gushing down the drain. It's so loud in that room. And oh, it was multiple autoclaves, really. It was so loud in that room you couldn't even talk from the sound of the water going down the drain. And, and I was like, I was going through so much single-use plastics for my, my assays, my studies that I was doing. I was just like, oh my gosh, there must be more that we could do than we are doing. Because the only item in the entire laboratory that was encouraging us to be more efficient was a sticker on the light switch that said, turn off when not in use, or something along those lines. And when you start to ask questions about the consumption of the various equipment in the lab, you begin to realize that the lights are just a small portion of our consumption, and really there must be more that we could do. So that's really what drove me to pitch the idea of creating the Green Labs program at the University of Colorado Boulder.
0: And how was it received when you first suggested this idea? Were people thinking, what?
1: Or were they excited? Well, I do feel lucky to be at Boulder, you know, in Boulder and at the University of Colorado Boulder because sustainability is a big deal in this community. It really is. And I mean, I would say that probably most people were like, oh, of course, we're going to start doing something with labs. It really, you know, I would say most people were, were kind of waiting maybe and expecting it to come along at some point. It wasn't like that shocking that we were going to start to address the consumption of lab. Of course there's always those people that are hesitant and so forth are not quite there in their journey. But no, I, I think I think it was it was well received from the beginning. Because before I even pitched the idea to the university, we did a little pilot in our in biochemistry where I was working as a postdoc, where I had been there for a number of years, so I already knew lots of people and just started organizing those people and starting to meter equipment and taking actions to get equipment turned off, learning how to turn that equipment off properly when not in use, creating whatever signage we need, needed to be able to do that. And what was amazing to me was that uh, you know I had to leave the university for a while for family reasons. And I thought, well, maybe all of that was going to fall apart while I was gone because I was the leader of it, this pilot basically in biochemistry. But when I came back to my amazement that nearly everything we had started was continuing. So that's what really made me think, yes, this can work and we should do more. And that's what um, really drove me to, to to want to pitch the idea to the University of Colorado Boulder. And I was lucky because at that time that I pitched it, the environmental center at the University of Colorado Boulder and facilities management at the University of Colorado Boulder, they were looking at that moment to do something with laboratories. So it was very well received in those communities because they also recognized that we needed to be starting something with laboratories to engage the laboratory occupants and uh, encourage them to be thinking about efficiency and sustainability in the decisions that they were making and the way that they were conducting their research. So it, it, the timing was just right, really right. So.
0: As you're speaking, it, it's occurring to me, it's not like there was a wealth of information for you to pull from. You couldn't say, well, you know, these other universities are doing this and all these companies are doing this. So you really had to figure it out on your own what the best practices were for the most part. And I'm curious, where did that confidence come from that you just knew how to do it?
1: Well, I will first say that we were not the first. I was lucky that University of California, Santa Barbara, and Harvard had been working, uh, beginning to do work in the green labs field. And so I was able to get some ideas from their websites. I also was able to start to meet with them. You know, we were a very small, tiny community, <laughs> but but we were a mighty community. And, uh, and so I, it, it was fortunate that there were, at the timing that I came in, I was lucky that there were a couple other individuals involved, you know, specifically Alan Doyle and Philip at at Harvard, and so that that was great to not be alone from the very beginning. But then we were just beginning, like you said, there was so much to create and do. So it really did help that I had been in scientific laboratories for 15 years, and luckily in two different disciplines, right? I had been in chemistry and in chemistry, I had done both organic chemistry and analytical chemistry. So I at least had some experience in chemistry and then biochemistry, well that opened up the whole biological side of science. So having that background was really useful in coming up with ideas of items that we could begin to propose to the scientists But then, really, to be honest, getting them to be thinking about what they could do in their own labs. Because, well, you have, even within one discipline, you might have experience in that. The labs can still be very different, one lab to the next. And so, you really need to have the lab members, the, the scientists, the researchers engaged to be thinking, well, what can I do? within my own research, that's not gonna negative, negatively impact my research or my safety. What is something that is feasible that I could try? And to be honest, some of the best ideas come from those individuals, not from necessarily those of us that are trying to, to encourage change, but to engaging them to come up with the solutions to implement. And that's, that's where we need to go because research is something that is so diverse, so many different types of equipment, different procedures that are being done. And unless the scientists become part of the solution, those that are conducting each of their own experiments, we're just not gonna get there because we need them to be thinking and proposing what's right for their research. Because there's no way that one or two people, or even a small team of people that are running a green labs program can really know what to suggest for hundreds, hundreds of diverse labs across the university campus of what they can implement.
0: I completely agree with you about inspiring people to, to find it within themselves. You know, what is the most sustainable solution for their research? I'm curious how, at the beginning, you inspired people. I mean, obviously, your energy is infectious. I mean, anybody who's listened to you for even just the last few minutes can hear how infectious it is. So I'm wondering, do you think it was the force of just your enthusiasm and, you know, obviously everything you're saying making sense and resonating with people, or was there something else that you think kind of helped people start to look inward and make changes?
1: I think many people are like myself, they went into science to make a difference, you know, to help. And there's many scientists out there that felt the same way as me. They're looking at their consumption. I would say that raising awareness of the consumption too, because it's easy, of course, to see the single use plastics, you know, the volume of that, that researchers going through. It's very easy to see the shelf of chemicals that are being used. But it's really hard to know about the energy consumption and the water consumption. Um, those can be more hidden. And although I guess sometimes you could see the water, but, you know, because if you're using a single-use condenser, you know, you can see that water consumption pretty easily. But certainly energy can be a, a, a harder item to to have a visual for so I think I think raised awareness of that consumption along with encouragement going door to door and trying to line up an eco in each lab you know person that would want to be the eyes ears and voice of efficiency and sustainability within their labs um, and then pulling people together and also trying to trying to make it fun. So having meetings or contests, you know, you can win a prize. And I also think that the positive public recognition is a huge part of it. So we would recognize people for their actions. And we still do to this day, uh, you know, on different levels. But, you know, it could be just we put something in our newsletter about something a lab is doing. Or it could be a whole group of labs that have chosen to take that initiative and what's the impact of that and getting that word out about that. Or we have annual green labs awards that recognize, uh, you know, site researchers or departments even we're gone up to departments or an entire lab for their actions, you know, at, at many different levels. And it doesn't have to be just the researchers. We recognize people in our environmental health and safety that are an integral part of the operations of our program, you know, and then also, um, you know, facilities management, you know, our waste streams uh, for green labs. We couldn't possibly do that without them. So, uh, and, and the whole recycling zero waste team. So, um, yeah, so I think it's like multiple items together. Some people are just that person from the very beginning. They're all on board. They want to do it. But I think others get on board with time. You know, they might, oh, okay, I'll participate in a contest and, you know, and then there's some recognition. Um, and and I think like the social movement starts to grow. So, you know, utilizing community-based social marketing is is great tools. So, there's positive public recognition for actions being taken and, yeah, I think that helps a lot.
0: It sounds like such a great place to be a scientist, honestly. The environment that you're describing, it just sounds like such a supportive, lovely environment.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, in general, of course, we do have those people that are not so interested in it. But to be honest, there's so many labs that want to, and we don't have enough people and time to really reach all the labs on campus, all the researchers at this point, I, I hope to get there in the future, but we are not there yet. That, okay, well, that lab doesn't wanna be involved. That's okay, you know, maybe later. And uh, just move on to the next lab. But what I have found is that over time, we've had labs that at first weren't interested and in, they became interested. They just had the perhaps the wrong perception of what the Green Labs program would be about. Um, They might have been fearful that we were going to be sitting there shaking our finger at them for not doing what they they should be doing. But we're not about that. We're not about that. We're about working together as a team, finding solutions, recognizing people that are taking actions. How How could this be a resume builder for the graduate students, the postdocs, the staff? I mean, I guess even the faculty working in the lab you know, how can this be seen as a positive and helpful thing? What are the what are the pieces on campus that are the needs of the researchers that are not being met? One of the reasons that we started our mobile freezer program was because when people had a freezer emergency, they didn't know what to do. It was just all of a sudden an emergency. And so we started to feel that that void and becoming a resource to the scientists. Okay, we have some mobile freezers there, minus 20 freezers, or we can bring it into your lab. Um, we also have helped with inventorying ultra-temperature ultra freezers across campus, getting those monitored. We've been a par- partner of that with facilities management. And so we became knowledgeable about where are all the ultra-lows on our campus, because you know, where some campuses have thousands, we have a a couple hundred. So we're about 200 ultra lows. So we became very knowledgeable. Where are the backup freezers on campus? Someone's having an ultra low temperature freezer failure. Okay, what, what do you do in that? We started to fill that void. What do you do in case of that emergency? And so hopefully that, it, it, well, I know it has, it has helped build up our image as, as a group that's there in a positive light to be helpful and uh, and okay, the scientists want to recycle foam coolers and pipette tip boxes from their labs. Okay, well, getting a program set up like that is not a simple task and they don't, they're, they're busy people, the researchers. So how do we overcome that hurdle? Well, Well, Green Labs can take on that task of working through, working with all those necessary stakeholders across campus, our recycling um, center off campus, you know, how can we make this work? How can we get there and have an ongoing program that then the scientists can participate in? And they love that, you know, they love being able to recycle and reduce their, their waste that's going to landfill and and I think that just opens the doors for us to then talk about energy consumption and choices that are being made because here they wanted for so long to have a program to address this waste stream that they just saw piling up in their lab, you know the foam coolers i had I have pictures of labs where it goes to the ceiling. you know the foam coolers because they hated to throw away. well, maybe I could reuse them, but you know you got these like, okay, can we have a program for this and And so you know, creating a creating a a ongoing recycling opportunity that meets the needs of the scientists that they were looking for, they wanted that, and then that opens the door for doing more. So yeah, to be seen in a positive light, yeah.
0: It feels like one of your superpowers really is bringing people together, and. I'm going to use the word inspire because it does feel like that. Like you breathe life and breath into spaces and ideas. And I'm curious, what are some of the things that you've created or worked on that are some of your favorite or some of the ones that you're most proud of? Because you've done so many, mm. like so many things. So what are the few that, you're, that you think back and you go, wow, like I, I really loved that. And I'm so glad I got to work on it.
1: Yeah, I would. First of all, I would say you're you're right. Uh, Green Labs really is a team approach. It's you know when I first started the CU Green Labs program at CU Boulder, I thought it was going to be all about me interacting with the researchers in the lab. You know, or not me, but our program interacting with the researchers in the lab. You know, talking about ways. But it soon became obvious that this this was not just going to be that. I mean how could we be doing what we were doing without engaging or interacting and working together with environmental health and safety? Um, Facilities management and the environmental center are the, the two, they jointly fund the program. So of course we were working with facilities management and from that side, but at the same time from the environmental center, which falls under student fair, working on the engagement piece, engaging the, the graduate students and so forth across campus, the postdocs, the, the staff and so forth. Um, so I just I just want to put out first that you are absolutely right. This is this is a team approach across campus that involves many stakeholders, I, we also are trying to grow our interaction with like our our vice chancellor of research office and. Office of Contracts and Grants, we've had some interaction with them, procurement. I mean, it it just goes on. When you think of the people that touch research, there's so many in different, and so it is. It really is team approach that involves many stakeholders, and some need to be involved with some projects, some others. To answer your question on one of my favorite projects that I've I've worked on, I would say that that was integrating green chemistry with the chemistry department with the instructors into their the chem 1021 course which is the introductory chemistry course for the chemistry department and that was that that was such a building project over time because we had first worked with the chemistry department to get a survey going that surveyed the students that were in the general chemistry classes, introductory chemistry classes, or organic chemistry classes to gauge their interest in green chemistry. And so we had done, and that overwhelmingly showed that the students wanted green chemistry, that they they wanted, they maybe they had heard the word in their class, but maybe they hadn't. That's what the survey results were showing but overall they wanted more green chemistry education they wanted this and so we had in the intermediate we had started a with the community group which is a graduate student group within the chemistry department and now and now the group uh, now this effort uh, of scholarships or fellowships includes not only the the community group but also the a uh, chemistry club or biochemistry club. It's it's joint chemistry and biochemistry club, but we offer uh, fellowships to students. They apply and then they can take a, a, a nine month online course with the University of Washington to get a certificate in green chemistry since, you know, to provide something in the intermediate where some students could be getting the green chemistry education that they wanted. But then in the spring of 2022, things just all came together and so that was it's just i think those moments when everything comes together and it all alive just make me so excited because matt wise uh, he was in, he was in the instructor of the chem 1021 course and he's like kathy i want to do something around green chemistry with 1021 and and Alec Knoll that also um, teaches that class was also very interested, even though he wasn't teaching it that semester, but definitely involved as well. And said, why don't why don't we create, we, we came together. It, it just happened to be that I had two students working for me for Green Labs. One already had an undergraduate chemistry degree and one was about to graduate with chemistry degree. And so we, those two students, Matt, Alec, myself, we all came together and we came up with this idea. Okay, there's, I think there were nine or 10 units to the to the class. And let's create a green chemistry module that goes along with each unit. So it takes material that's being taught in the class, but it adds a green chemistry element to it. And that's what we did. So the, the students really did most of the work, these two students, that, were working for me. Um, it's uh, Bryn McDowell and Jan Hugh. And so an amazing opportunity for them, first of all, right? I mean, yeah, add it to your resume, right? I mean, I created green chemistry content or I basically, uh, you know, there's a lot of resources out there. So they basically pulled together the appropriate resources to create these modules to go along with this Chem 1021 course. And at first it was offered just as extra credit because we were doing the pilot and Matt would oversee the modules, make sure you know revise, make, make small revisions. But Jan and Bryn really did most of the work and the students, we were impressed. Do you know that uh, about on average, we had like 50% of the students participating for a little bit of extra credit in the oh, extra wow. work for the class where this is an introductory chemistry class. And so amazing, right? And uh-huh. now it's integrated into the grading system of the class and all the students, you know, we get, you know, of course nearly a hundred percent with that. And yeah, so that was just amazing uh, for many reasons. Uh, first of all, student led. So that was very efficient with the instructor's time. Cause you know, the instructors of these courses, they're very busy. Uh, and then, Also, it's reaching about 600 students, I would say, that's a, I think that's a ballpark number per year now. They're getting this green chemistry education. Um, And yeah, and it just set up a model now of how we could do this for other courses. So just, just wonderful. And then we're uh, collecting feedback data, actually have some, uh, two other students now, because the other ones have left and graduated the university, that happened. You know, you have these wonderful students and then they graduate, (laughs) but uh, you know, two other students now that are working on analyzing data to come up with impact of the effort. So yeah, that's really great. So that's one of the coolest experiments, yeah. Or or not experiments, but pilots that we participated in with that became integrated, it's wonderful. Yeah, that's honestly, that's phenomenal.
0: That's what I mean. You're so inspiring. Oh, uh, like, you've been at this for what 14 years now? Yes.
1: Well, officially, 14. Unofficially, I would say 16, because that's when we when we first piloted in biochemistry with my colleagues from the other labs in biochemistry. It was it was just us trying out something, you know, just. Yeah, just giving it a whirl, see if it could work. I, I pulling in my colleagues and starting to turn off equipment when not in use and setting up a mail back, you know, cuz New England Biolabs had that mail back program and then I think Promega too. So starting the okay, let's organize the mail back so that we're doing it and yeah, you know, just what what was available cuz it was really hard. There wasn't that was the only reuse program or recycling waste diversion program we could set up at that time yeah because there wasn't any other opportunities so yeah
0: yeah you're amazing oh just thank
1: you amazing
0: you don't have to say that I know you are too it's, it's just the truth i mean i'm listening to just like just this one example in green chemistry which is I mean that's transformative, not just for your university, but now it's a model for
1: everyone. Right. It's so exciting. (laughs) It is, and we have a white paper written up on it on our website that people can access. So we wrote it up, and you know, I think that means so much to me because it was one of those projects, and and there are others where you had to start somewhere, and you just kept going. I mean, because that was so many years in the making and to get to the end and it had success you know and and the support of the department too that was I think that was also part of the rewarding part was it was never a journey alone it was a journey together with the department and I I think that's really important I We could have tried to go do things, you know, without the chemistry department, but that's not the point. The point is to do this together and not be doing things without. It's to engage the the researchers themselves, the instructors, to go on this journey together and, and be supportive of each other and get to a result that we're all excited about. Because I don't want to be creating something that they're not proud of, or they're not a part of, or that, that they don't agree with. I want it to be something that we can all come together on, you know, really utilize a team approach. So yeah, that was really important. Mm-hmm. And our scholarships, just so you know, our fellowships to the University of Washington program, they're still going on. Because of course, some students you know want more than just introductory chem, because we'll eventually get there with other courses. I'm sure we will at, at CU Boulder, other chemistry courses. But students want that certificate. You know, they want that that longer education of green chemistry, and so we're still offering that to this day for the students. It's it's not able to reach as many because you know we're only able to give it to a few students every year. But it it it's a wonderful opportunity for them. Mm-hmm. Those that go through the program.
0: Mm-hmm. And also, I I would imagine. Is a way to show people how important this is just by offering it as an opportunity. That's right. It demonstrates, Hey, this is something that's worth at least thinking about in some capacity, even if you're not able to go through the full program and maybe inspire some of them to want to be part of what I'm sure you're going to be creating next and integrating this into additional classes. And it's just, hearing you talk about the, the journey that you go on and, and continuing to make sure that everybody is part of it. That's that, I don't have a word for it, that, that really special thing that you do because you really do hold everybody as you're walking forward. And you have these visions that are, yeah, 15 years out and you're still holding everybody's hand as you're walking us all towards them. And it's amazing and beautiful and so special to be alive at the same time as you and to be a part of this and see what you're doing. Oh,
1: thank you. So you don't have to say all those nice things, really. You don't.
0: So, but it's the truth. And I'm really curious. So where are you taking us next? Mm. Where are you leading us? Yeah. Um. well. I'm settling in for this one.
1: <laughs> Well, the researchers in general, it's my in working with them. Like I pointed out earlier in the conversation, my experience is that most want to do the right thing. You know, they went into science to help. And it's hard because historically the funding structure of science is not encouraging efficiency and sustainability in the way that research is conducted. And this is, all these items that the scientists are doing are voluntary a lot of times and from their heart, which is wonderful, but it's sometimes working against the system and what the system is expecting of them. So they want to for example, the waste diversion is easy. They want to do waste, they want to divert their waste from the landfill. They don't want these large streams constantly flowing out their lab. But until the funding structures of science start to encourage and promote the use of sustainable products, that's, that can be a challenge because they have to keep their research going. And they want to be sustainable, but that is a really hard shift when there's not many products out there that are truly sustainable products or or green products in the first place. And until the funding starts to push and say, we want you with this funding to be buying sustainable products, I don't think the companies that are selling the products are going to change. Fast enough. We need the companies that are creating these products, creating this equipment. You know, thinking about the energy consumption of the equipment. Until the money funding that science is saying yes, sustainability is a priority in the way the research is conducted. I don't think we'll get the companies um, de- developing the products that we need fast enough to. To, you know for the environmental degradation that we're seeing around the world so you know we need to look at our electron microscopes and make them more energy efficient but if that if that if if making a more energy efficient electron microscope finally pushes that company over the edge versus others then the companies will jump and we saw that right with the ultra low temperature freezers yes as soon as it was going to affect the sales themselves by the companies, then we saw all of a sudden companies creating more energy-efficient ultras and very fast, right? In a very short yeah. period of time, when, when it became clear that that the market was going to go after the energy-efficient freezers and that's where the future was and anyone that was not, shifting their manufacturing or their, their design of their freezers to be energy efficient, at least for ultra-temperature freezers, we were, they were going to lose some market share and then things change very quickly. If the funding supporting research is saying, we are expecting and looking for efficiency and sustainability in scientific research, then that'll push those, those innovations faster and we'll get there faster. And so really one thing that researchers can do is to say, funding bodies, we want you to encourage sustainability in scientific research. And to do that, they can sign the Million Advocates for Sustainable Science letter and encourage our funding bodies to start to expect sustainability and efficiency in the way research is conducted.
0: So what does it look like in an ideal world? If you could kind of magic it to look however you like, what do you think would be the best path forward for the funding bodies to support sustainability and science? What does that actually look like?
1: Yeah, first of all, I'll say that research cannot happen without the money. And therefore, the money can drive the change that we need. And What does that look like? It actually has different parts. So the grant applications themselves, right? There is an announcement to say there's a new grant opportunity out there. Those funding opportunity announcements or requests for proposals, those announcements saying, here's an opportunity where you can apply for funding. They can start to incorporate it there. They can say, you know, how are you gonna do this research in an efficient, sustainable way? So there could be, begin to have language there. And in fact, I do believe that that's like one of the easiest places to incorporate it because there's a lot of uh, leeway in what language can be put into those announcements by by the funding bodies and by the, perhaps like for NIH the Institute that is making that announcement the grant applications themselves when we get to what equipment do you need to conduct this research and please list it out here with you know make your your items it's also in the budget for the proposal there needs to be instead of what do you need first what does your institution have already and use that equipment first and then, okay, what else do you need? So the language needs to change on the various granting bodies to reflect this. Um, And so that's another example. So there, and there's multiple places within the grant application form where expectations for sustainability efficiency could be incorporated in the shared equipment is one example. In addition to the, the grant application process, there's also the overhead rate calculation, at least in the United States, I'm aware of that process. And unfortunately for large research institution, there's a space survey. And yes, we're surveying the space uh, that's being used and connected with sponsor funded research on our campuses and as part of the process to calculate that. But there's, there's no expectations in there for efficient use of space or or not even a single question saying what is your campus doing for to make sure that you're utilizing research space in an efficient and optimized manner Uh, and the same can be said for energy and water unfortunately the overhead rate calculation process in the united states which is a federal process has no requests for efficiency with energy water or research space and we really need it to be there. What is your campus doing in these areas for efficiency? Lastly, I would say like the offices where administration and policy of grants is happening in the various funding bodies, at least at least this is my experience. I'm unaware of anyone in those offices that is looking for environmental sustainability in connection with the funding of science. So those people that are, I'm sure, working very hard and diligently for good ethics around money, but we're missing a whole element. We need someone in those offices to be looking for ways to be more efficient and sustainable with the way research is being conducted in connection with the funding.
0: It's almost unbelievable, right, to imagine that no one would ask about existing equipment or space utilization just because why would you spend money on something that already exists at the university at the, at like the most basic level, this feels like Mm -hmm. it should be so easy for Mm -hmm. people to just all go. Yeah, of course. So do you have any insight into what's taking so long for that particular piece to actually have people be excited to support
1: it? In in my opinion, The reason we're not making progress faster with system change, particularly around the funding of research, is because it's like a puzzle. The whole thing is like a puzzle. And there's people that are connected with the different pieces of the puzzle, but There's very few people that get to pull back and look at the whole puzzle and see how it's all fitting together and where the missed opportunities are. That is is my opinion why we're not making more progress on this more quickly. Like the federal government, I I mean, I think everyone's heart is always in the right place. I really Mm -hmm. do. Everyone's heart is in the right place. Uh, You know, giving these grants to the research institutions. And in particular, I'm talking about the large research institutions that are well-funded. And so this money flows in to conduct this research, which is really important research, right? That that will benefit society and so forth. But the manner in which it flows, is not really known on that side of, of the granting bodies of how it's flowing in and then setting up these dynamics that make it difficult to shift the system at the research institution. So the grant flows into the university environment. And when the only time a research institution like a university will get money for overhead is when a grant is, is awarded. So when the scientists and the institution are successful getting that grant then the the dollars to pay for all the support you know the overhead the energy the the water the 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 hazardous waste pickup i mean we could go on and on on the list the 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 maintenance of the space the people that are necessary the the administrators that are necessary to make sure we're compliant so and forth the money to support all that only flows in when the grant is awarded and And so, so of course the university environment is completely reliant on the scientists, the scientists across campus to come up with the ideas and the research that needs to happen to win the award to then pull in the overhead. And so it sets up this dynamic where the university becomes, in my opinion, dependent on the scientists And when the funding structure of science says, we're we're talking about the grant proposals and we're talking about the overhead rate calculation, does not include expectations for efficiency and sustainability in science. As much as the university environment is like passing climate action plans, energy master plans, it still comes down to the fact that this university is completely dependent on these scientists to bring in. And the last thing they want to do is push in the wrong way. Say, well, you know, you used to need space for 20 researchers, but your lab only has 10 in it now. I think you need to, could we, could, you, could we give up some space? There is absolutely nothing that the university can point to that says, well, we're, we're doing that because... This process, this overhead rate calculation process is expecting us to do that. So yes, some campuses have come up with policy on space utilization, but my experience across the nation is that research institutions are not periodically evaluating research activity in research spaces and reallocating based upon current research activity needs rather than historical needs. That that is not happening because the funding structure of science is not supporting that is not helping that but I think very few people would even know that because again it's a big puzzle and you have to look at the entire puzzle and how it all fits together but most people only know their one piece of the puzzle that they touch and and I want to just clarify that there are of course some examples where efficiency energy efficiency like in the construction of new laboratory buildings has been encouraged in the funding structure and so forth but the vast majority of funding is still very lacking in this in my opinion and 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 I don't think that's just alone in the united states i would say it's other countries as well another example of where sustainability is is being seen is in the shared instrumentation grants like nsf has a major research instrumentation grant and that that is shared equipment and and nih has S-10s, for example, that are shared instrumentation. But again, that's just a very small portion of the budget of that granting body. And what about shared equipment and all of the other grants that are being funded? So we're, we're missing the bigger piece of the pie to be influencing as well. We, 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 yeah, this little part is important, but let's do it for all the grants. We're missing that. And we need to be doing that.
0: You articulate that so well that the puzzle, and I think it applies to this situation, but it also applies to almost everything in our lives, that if we don't take a minute to try to take a step back, mm-hmm. we get so myopic in our perception that we don't realize that maybe what we're doing isn't actually the most beneficial, isn't the most efficient, mm-hmm. isn't the most sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so it's just this general message of, hey, hold up, what are we doing? Yeah. Does this actually make sense? Yeah. It is really important in all aspects of our lives. And yeah, to hear you talk about it, I, I can't imagine somebody listening to this who, who wouldn't go,
1: yeah, duh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. In connection with that, Allison, you know, I've heard a number of scientists say that they don't want to see their campus ICR Indirect Cost Recovery or F&A. Facilities and administrative costs, they're the, essentially the same thing, which you can just think of as their overhead rate increase for campus uh, because, you know, that affects, that can affect for National Science Foundation. You know, there's a cap of the two combined, and that can affect how much they can ask for for the actual science that they're going to do in the lab. But at the same time, They actually don't know or understand at least the vast majority of scientists I've interacted with, how that rate is calculated and how the decisions they're making are affecting that rate. So they don't want it to go up, but they don't realize that by holding on to this large lab, when they really don't need that space anymore, if you can connect that lab to uh, to sponsored research, that's contributing to the problem. It's contributing to the problem it's causing yeah so this is this is something this is what we're talking about with the big picture yes we need to understand how the pieces all fit together and and I certainly still have more to learn you know I'm trying to learn as much as possible and hopefully I said everything correctly in this this video today I, I think I was on correctly with uh, w- with my statements but but I, I will no doubt say that I, I certainly don't know it. I'm still learning. But if we wait until we know everything before we start to try to do anything, we are never going to get there. We have to stick our neck out and try and then learn. We'll learn faster and more information if we start to push it and and say, okay, but We need to go here because of this, this, and this. And along the way, you'll learn. I just learned something new today about ICR. It was wonderful. I loved it.
0: (laughs) Do you remember at the very beginning or somewhere near the beginning, I had said you had so much courage in getting this started because you just did it. And you have that even now as you're speaking about this granting process, there's something in you that just jumps and goes, well, I'll work it out as I'm I'm falling you know <laughs> I'll, I'll figure it out it's just it's really rare quality oh, and it's thanks. because of that 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 you're able to move things forward because if we were to wait who knows how long it would be those things are always changing you know there's a policy it makes sense and then it changes and you have to be up on top of it there's a million different granting agencies there's all the federal ones but then there's also all these private ones and there's a lot yeah and every university is slightly different. So, the fact that you're willing to just say, Right, I'm going to learn as much as I can and I'm going to learn as I go mm-hmm. because this, we cannot wait on this. Mm-hmm. And it's really incredible. Thank you.
1: Thank you. But thank yeah.
0: you. Thank you for doing this work because you, mm-hmm. I have no doubt that you will find a path forward because oh, you. you always do. And that this will be one of the most transformative things that happens in science in our lifetime Mm -hmm. because you're right scientists don't fully understand all of this even just as you were speaking about the overhead rate energy is part of that Mm -hmm. and and so how we use our equipment is built into that overhead rate but it's never that's never clear or transparent in any way so we have these grants where we keep buying more and more equipment, which mm-hmm. then increased our energy costs, which then increase the overhead yep. rate costs. And it just makes no sense yep. at all.
1: Well, and and buying more and more equipment, items that our campuses already have, and we it's really, we don't need more of those. But yes. um, the scientists might not have access because we're not organized around yes. shared equipment because the funding structure is not pushing us to be organized around fun around shared equipment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I don't I don't I don't say this is anyone's fault. It's just the mm-hmm. structures are not helping us. So it's when you when you unnecessarily duplicate equipment, it's not only, yes, okay, first of all, we're spending federal dollars, taxpayer dollars oftentimes, if it's a federal grant, on equipment that we already have and we don't need. So that that's one Okay, that's not very helpful. Two, right? Okay, yeah, right, it's a secondary plug load. So it's pulling electricity, right? So that's not helpful. If it requires any water for cooling, then we're also, there could be single use water if we don't have a a process chilled water loop hooked up to that. So we might be doing more water consumption. And then it's taking up the laboratory space, which is some of the most expensive space on the campus right, expensive space to maintain, but also the most energy intensive space, because why? The ventilation needs of that laboratory space, right? So you're getting hit with energy in two areas here, the plug, you know, the electric electricity when you plug it in, but then also the ventilation needs of the laboratory space. We're not using that space wisely, as wisely as we could. And so there's an energy component associated with that not to mention a financial piece connected with that in terms of maintenance of and construction of that space in the first place so some of the most expensive spaces to construct on our university campuses and and yeah i don't think researchers have had a chance to fully grasp the knowledge of how energy consumption consumptive scientific research can be and you know i think we need to get back even to some of the posters that are on that. I have uh, one that we're going to work on that just really shows, okay, here's CU Boulder's buildings. Here's how much is going of the building energy consumption on campus. If you look at the entire collection of buildings, this is how much is being used by the research buildings. And it just stands out as like, that is the elephant in the room. It's the biggest part of the pie. But, you know, like I said earlier, energy is hard to see. You know, you don't see energy. So it's hard to know that. And so that'll be a really, really great poster that we're going to work on. So,
0: Oh, will you share it? Of Of course. course It's always on your website. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All our posters are available to everyone on our website as long as they're not going to be sold. (laughs) It's not for (laughs) profit. It's like, you know, for someone to make profit off of it. They're free. And, yeah, they're for everyone to use. So.
0: Kathy, I don't want this to end, but I know I, I do need to say goodbye, even though I don't want to. Are there is there anything else you want to add or share? Because you just you have such good ideas and you have such good foresight into Green Labs. So, is there anything else you want to share with the community about where you th- see things going or what else we need to work on?
1: Yeah, uh, another point I want to say is that Green Labs programs on our university campuses it's a growing movement but even the well established ones we're still only scratching the surface of what is possible in our campus our campuses the the opportunities the untapped potential is so huge in the laboratories and we're not getting there yet because we need so more support and one of the reasons that a green labs program working with the scientists, engaging all the stakeholders requires more support than maybe like a green office program, for example, is because the labs are so diverse across campus. And and there's also hazards involved. So you have to really have safety in mind. But one lab can be so different from the next. Whereas with a green office program, right, you're going to have essentially the same things in every office pretty much. But that is not the case with labs. We need to recognize that. And the consumption is so large there. And as I mentioned, there's so much untapped potential that if the universities did invest more into their Green Labs programs, gave them the full-time staff to to run, and then hopefully that leads to more and more student staff to opportunities for professional development for the students at your institution. If we did that, we would, the, the savings that the university would receive and all the untapped potential would pay for it, for sure. I have no doubt. There is no doubt in my mind. But I'm fearful that until the funding structures for science start to ask for efficiency sustainability and even maybe ask for the lab sustainability plan of the entire institution, until that starts to happen, I don't know that we're gonna get the funding That the green labs programs need to truly have campus-wide engagement of the researchers and to really be implementing ongoing efforts around fume hoods around freezers around all the various equipment that we can the support of the researchers the researchers need support as i mentioned before these are very busy individuals they they need to stay focused on their science they need support from the sustainability to execute the idea that they might have presented, but they don't have the time to get to. And until we start really truly expanding our, our support of the Green Labs programs, we're, we're just not gonna fully achieve what's possible. And our campuses need to do this because we have energy plan, you know, energy goals, we have climate goals, and on a large research university, the The labs, the research spaces are such large consumers of the energy and and are connected to the greenhouse gases as a result of the energy consumption. And so if we're gonna truly address our energy consumption with renewables, we need to make it in a cost-effective way. The most cost-effective thing is not to have the consumption in the first place, and there is so much untapped potential to be doing more energy efficiency in the lab, but we're not gonna get there until the resources come to support the programs to get there. You know, it's just, it, it's just a challenge. So we need to get there, we need to get there. And I don't know how it's gonna happen. If the funding structure, if the funding structures for science, you know, from the granting bodies, from the overhead rate calculation, if that was to start to incentivize this, that would be a big help, that would, you know, move us in that direction. So hopefully we get there. I I think we can. I believe we can. I know we can. I know we can. Right.
0: (laughs) Honestly, if you've listened to this podcast and you haven't yet signed the Million Advocates for Sustainable Science, go do that. (laughs) Absolutely. And tell everybody else, you know, to go do that. Because,
1: yeah, Kathy, you're speaking the truth. And we're looking for institutions that are bold, and are concerned about climate change and do see the large footprint of scientific research on contributing to climate change, to be an organizational signer of the Million Advocates for Sustainable Science. That letter signing effort will have far more impact when we start to get logos of universities or other uh, research institutions as organizational signers. That is when that letter We'll, we'll, the impact will really start to increase. I think it's already having impact, but you know the impact will just take off from there if we start to get our universities, our other research institutions that are willing to put their logo down there saying, we want the funding bodies to start to expect efficiency and sustainability in the way research is connected, in connection with the grant funding. When that happens, man, that's going to really take off.
0: Then let's do it.
1: Yeah? Okay? Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, everyone, let's do it cuz what are we waiting for?
1: Right?
0: It's been how many years that you've been working on this?
1: <laughs> on on the funding? Yeah. Oh. You know what? The funding items, they would have started in 2010. 13 years. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was but that was just you had to start by learning. You know, you had to start by learning where, how is all of this, who's the one that can influence this and how does it interrelate? How does it even work? And I wanna say, you know, to be honest, some of that work started because a researcher asked me, said, so Kathy, I believe in all these things that you're encouraging us to do. I wanna know why is it voluntary that we're doing this? Why isn't this just something that we're supposed to do? Why? And that that really helped to formulate the direction of where to go. Why is that? what? Why is everything that you're encouraging voluntary? Shouldn't this just be what we're supposed to do? I mean, this does mean more efficient use for taxpayer dollars, right? Which are which also then is more efficient use of the, budget for the, the research sponsors and the research they're supporting. It helps the universities with reaching their sustainability goals, you know, and it's good for the environment, the planet that is screaming out to us, help, you know, we're, climate change is here. There's, there's examples of it, you know, across the world. So yeah, why is it voluntary? Why isn't this just something that's happening and and is expected it's a good question
0: Kathy thank you thank you for inspiring me as always and I'm sure everybody else who's listening and you're just your life force is so vital it's so it's so you're so alive
1: thank you Allison I really appreciate that you know I want to say that I feel lucky to have been in this work it has such meaning it's and to be able to see the impact that you're having. I, I, I feel very lucky so, to have been able to be in this field and to use all the education and all that experience of working in the labs to work towards this. How lucky I've been, really. And then to have CU Boulder say, yes, we like that idea. That's a great idea. We'll support you. Yes, let's do that. You know, How lucky could I be? And then to have the researchers say, Oh yeah, I'm interested in that. Yeah, let's do that. So I just I just want want you to know I, I do feel so lucky to have had this career.
0: Well we're also lucky that you're here. Yeah, thank you. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.